This is NBA Sound System Live, featured on NBA.com sites around the world and archived on the NBA Sound System podcast feed, where you get your podcasts by searching NBA Sound System. Thank you for joining us. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, each with the handle at NBA Sound System, or visit us at NBASoundSystem.com for more. Now, NBA Sound System Live. It is indeed NBA Sound System L-I-V-E live coming at you live and direct across the NBA Global Networks. Carlin Gay alongside Scott Rafferty. Playoff time, Scott. We have a 2-2 series. We have a 3-0 series. It still feels like there's plenty to talk about, not only in the playoffs, but outside of the playoffs as well. Uh, How are you doing, sir? Colin, to be honest, I almost called in in sick today because watching that game two of Mavericks Warriors, I was dreading. After the Warriors came back in that second half, I was dreading NBA Sound System on Tuesday with you because um, <laughs> you said this was going to be an easy series for the Warriors. And to kick me while I was down, the Warriors win game three. And not only that, Andrew Wiggins has a massive game and the dunk of the playoffs and probably the dunk of his career. Um, so, yeah, I, I almost called in sick today. Other than that, I'm fine. I'm sure you are doing well today, though. I, I'm doing well. I, I'm going to spare you uh, me dancing and celebrating because, as Kobe once said, Job not done. Uh, we still have, I'm saying we as if I'm a fan of the Warriors. Let me not <laughs> say that. The Warriors still have one more win to get. Um, everyone assumes that they'll do it, just a matter of when. And they'll punch their ticket to the NBA Finals once again, be the sixth time in the last eight years that they do that. Uh, we'll talk about them uh, in, in great detail. We'll also talk about the Lakers and their coaching search. Check in on that. There's been some reports that one of the big-name coaches might be in play for the L.A. Lakers. Uh, And we'll also talk about the Seas and Heat, who uh, have been going back and forth in blowouts uh, after blowout after blowout. That series is tied to the all-important Game 5 coming up uh, on Wednesday night. All right, let's get to the Warriors. We have to start with the Warriors right off the top. They are leading at the time of speaking to you guys right now live across the NBA Global Networks. If you're listening to the podcast, wherever you get your podcasts, NBA Sound System, please rate and review. 3-0 series lead for Steph Curry and the Golden State Warriors. It almost feels like it came out of complete shock for everyone uh, that the Warriors are a good basketball team because they are really sort of uh, showing you that there is another level you have to get to when you get to these conference finals, and I don't think that the Dallas Mavericks were ready to get that to get to that level outside of Luka Doncic. Doncic, you know, he's, he's always going to be ready no matter the stage. Uh, we know that about him. But the others, and that was my critique about this Mavericks series and why I saw it ending as quickly as it could end, was that I wasn't completely confident that Dorian Finney-Smith, uh, Reggie Bullock, you know, uh, and the list goes on, would be able to replicate what they did in the first two series. And it's not even like they did a ton, Scott. I, I don't want to discredit what they did. They did obviously you know, uh, help the, the Mavericks get to this Western Conference Finals. But it, you know, it, it was a game here, a game there from each of them. And we haven't seen that in the first three games here. And, and it hasn't, like, hasn't been like they haven't been getting those opportunities either. I think they've just missed a lot of open shots. And now we have a 3-0 hole. No one comes out of a 3-0 hole. We know that. Um, but what what happened to the Dallas Mavericks here? I think some of it is the three-point shooting, um, to be honest. This team shoots a ton of threes. Just the way they're built, they play five out. They they rely on Luka Doncic and his creation. Same thing with Jalen Brunson and Spencer Didwini. And what we saw in that first round against the Jazz was, you know, the way they play five out, it puts so much pressure on Rudy Gobert to defend the perimeter and protect the rim. That opens up drives, but also open shots. Um, and we saw it against the Suns team in the second round that has been one of the best defensive teams of the last couple seasons. And I think, you know, I, I definitely thought going into that series that the Suns would be better equipped to defend that. Turns out that they weren't. Um, but even in this series, like, for the most part, like, I, I feel like the the Mavs have had pretty good shots. Like, a lot of their threes that they've missed, you feel good about, I feel like, if you are Jason Kidd and the Mavericks. Um, but they just haven't been able to knock them down at anywhere near the same clip as they have previously. You know, someone like Maxi Kleber, he's shooting 14.3% from three in this series. 
Um, he's 214 overall. Like that's just not going to get it done. He, his ability to space the floor at a high rate was what, you know, dragged Rudy Gobert and then DeAndre now to the perimeter so much in the previous series. You said it, Reggie Bullock is, is 9 for 27, 33.3%. I bet you if you watch those 27 threes, the bulk of them are pretty wide open. Um, I, I think a lot of it comes down to that. And that's not to say, by the way, that like the Warriors are just getting lucky because that's absolutely not the case. Like They, they had a great defensive game plan going into the series. Um, Andrew Wiggins, who I know we'll be talking about more in a minute, ha- has done about as good as a job as really you could expect anyone in defending Luka Doncic. Um, at least making life difficult for him. And then Draymond Green, what he's been able to do as like the backline defender. Um, we know he's a genius on that end of the court. Um, but even like, you know, they, the Warriors have a lot of um, a lot of experience of guys, specifically LeBron James, like targeting Stephen Curry on defense and knowing how to, or at least knowing how they want to defend that. So Steph Curry has been able to kind of, when they target him in pick and rolls, hedging, um, not giving that ma- that mismatch that Luka Doncic is looking for. And really Steve Kerr as well. Some of the stuff that he's done, um, throwing out box in one zone, basically mixing their coverage whenever it looks like the Mavericks might be figuring something out, I think has been able to keep them off balance. So, I, But, I mean, that's, that's the main thing for me, um, why the Mavericks have struggled. But also, like, defensively, I thought the Mavericks were great in the first two rounds. They just haven't been able to hold up on that end of the court against this Warriors team. And a lot of that is just, you know, this Warriors team, one, is built around Stephen Curry, who's one of the greatest players ever, um, but also the system that they have, the cutting, the running that they do. Um, and really, they a big thing in this series, they've had no answer for the Warriors when they've kind of put their head down and go to the basket, no matter who it is. So um, I, I think it's th- those factors mainly is, is kind of what's been the downfall of the Mavericks so far. Yeah, you mentioned Reggie Bullock, who was uh, struggling from three-point range, 9 of 27 in this series for 33%. All 27 attempts from three have either been, according to NBA uh, stats' tracking data, have either been open or wide open. He's shooting 33% in both categories, 9 of 3 for wide open, or sorry, for open field goal attempts from three, and 6 of 18 for wide open three-point attempts. Uh, I do think that the Mavs are going to win game four because of that. Uh, I think that just the percentages are going to work out where they're going to catch fire in one of these games, and it's likely going to be at home. Um, you know, it, it's very, very hard to sweep teams in the NBA. It is very hard to sweep teams in the NBA. I, I think people overlook that. Anytime you get up 3 0, uh, you, you expect that, you know, that team that's especially playing at home. You know, to kind of roll over and allow it to happen. No, it's very tough to sweep in the NBA. That's why you see a lot of gentlemen sweeps um, because that team is, is is always going to fight and claw and make sure that their se- their season doesn't end, not only at home but just end in in you know period. Uh, so I, I do expect this to go to to a game five and Golden State to close it out there. Uh, but you know, the the Mavs are going to get a a great shooting performance from. Um, you know the, the the three that you mentioned that just have not shot the ball well and Bullock, uh, Kleber, and Bertans. You know he he can't hit anything. Twelve uh, percent from three point range in this series. So uh, Luca's going to be Luca. You know he he's going to get his averages no matter who's guarding him. Uh, he's averaging thirty four points, uh, seven rebounds, and and five assists per game. Shooting percentages are, you know, 45% from the field, 41 from three. So he, he is, you know, doing it efficiently. Brunson as well. Um, they, for some reason, Brunson can't hit a free throw. That blows my mind. Uh, he, he, he was, you know, a solid free throw shooter, but, you know, he's now, um, you know, in this series shooting under 65% from a free throw line. That's just not going to get it done. Uh, so the, the Mavs are just missing opportunities, and, and they, they really do have – themselves to blame because the opportunities are there um but again you know could be nerves could be tired legs uh could be a million things uh but you know at the top of that list is the fact that the golden state warriors are standing in front of them uh you know kind of forcing them into what they want them to do uh and i think they were able to the mavs were able to dictate the pace of their first round series against the jazz they were able to slow the suns down and dictate the pace of that series they haven't been able to do that here in the Western Conference Finals. The, the Warriors play at a, a much faster pace than those two other teams I mentioned, uh, and, and they're not going to allow you to slow them down and play a half-court style of basketball. They, they're going to get up and, and down the floor, and I don't think the Mavs have the uh, personnel to be able to adjust to that. Um, 
Andrew Wiggins has done a, a, a good job. I, I, you know me, I am, you know, I am the self-proclaimed number one fan of Andrew Wiggins. I've, I've always been a supporter of him defensively. I, you know, he has done a great job. Um, you know, uh, relatively speaking because Luca is, is averaging what he's averaging he's going to get his points he has made life difficult for Luca in terms of Luca's been working his butt off to get shots off um you know he, he has been working hard for um the you know the averages that he's putting up and I, I felt like in in after that game three press conference not only just talking about the dunk but you know in some of the answers if you go back and listen to it it felt like Luca was almost um, you know, giving the the almost like an exit interview versus you know acting as if they still had a chance in this series, and you know praising Wiggins for the dunk was almost like a a great player looking over on the other side saying you got me this time, but but I'm gonna get you again next time, and not just the dunk, but the series. Uh, I think Luca is gonna file this away and and come back better and stronger uh, next season. He knows he has things to work on. He he seemed fatigued. Um, mentally drained in answering some of those questions. And I felt like Jason Kidd did too. It felt like, um, you know, there's not much time really to adjust to what the Warriors are doing. Uh, there's only one day off in between games. You, you don't have practices at this time of the year. So it's hard to to put in a system or to, to, to put in, you know, adjustments in place to try and stop what the Warriors have to offer. And let's face it, it's been eight years, um, you know, that we've seen this run. Six six of the years are, are going to end up being yeah, a Warriors team in the finals. There's not many defensive teams that have the personnel out there to stop what the Warriors are doing. So, um, you know, credit to the Mavs, great season. Uh, but Wiggins, his defense, you know, terrific. But I think it's his offense that really pushes it over the board for me, Scott. I, I, I think I've talked about that. Um, you know, I talked about that last week after game one. You know, yeah, his defense was great, and Luca did struggle in the second half of that game. But it was his offense really that really impressed me. He was so aggressive every time he had the opportunity to be in space, or he saw Luca guarding him one on one, and it, it just forces Luca to never be able to take a break. And I think, you know, by the time you get to games three, four, five of the series, uh, that really shows up. Luca doesn't want to drive anymore uh, because that you know he's always kind of looking around for Wiggins with his length. Uh, you know he doesn't want to take any more hits. The shoulder we saw has been taped up, and you know it, it, there's a lot more pump fakes that Wiggins is not biting on. Um, it, it just just feels like he's 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 physically exhausted. He's mentally exhausted, um, and and, he, and he's he's been defeated. The, the will has been broken just because Andrew Wiggins has been so energetic on both ends of the floor. Yeah, I think to your point, Wiggins has been about as good as anyone could be expected to defend Luka, right? Like he's made it difficult for him in one-on-one -on -one matchups, um, hasn't been giving him the the easy fouls, is not getting baited into fouls, and he's had the right support around him, right? Like I mentioned, Draymond Green, it feels like he's always in the right position defensively, um, never making Luka Doncic comfortable. So I, I agree with you on that front. I think offensively, yeah, it, his numbers don't necessarily pop in the first two games when you kind of look, go back and look at them. But in game one, especially in that first half, he really did look to be aggressive offensively. And that's been one of the knocks on Wiggins throughout his career, right? It's this guy who has all the talent in the world to be a star. Um, and yet just sometimes he, he kind of seems to fade into the background. So I think that was really encouraging for the Warriors in game one because you know, like we saw in the last round too, there was that one game in the Sun Series where they just attacked Luca relentlessly defensively. Um, but even on the, on the other hand, in that series, you know, the Mavs targeted Chris Paul relentlessly um, to just try and wear him down on both ends of the court. But really, that game three offensively was where Wigan shined, um, dropping 27 points. And you know, the dunk is going to get all the attention. Um, but I, I mean, he was relentless attacking the offensive glass too. He had six offensive rebounds. That was the most on the Warriors. Um, I, I think I remember him having like two big putbacks in a game that was close down the stretch or, or when every kind of basket mattered. So, um, no, I mean, it's it's been it's been a very impressive series for Andrew Wiggins on both ends of the court. Um, I, I think when they pulled off this trade, there was a lot of question marks about kind of what the Warriors were doing, what the Warriors were envisioning, whether or not a guy who was formerly a number one pick and has always kind of been the first or second option on a team whether he would be comfortable kind of taking that Harrison Barnes role 
um, the, the third or fourth option on offense, taking on the toughest defensive assignments every single night. And, and you know, we're saying in this series, that's exactly what he's done. Um, so from that perspective, you know, that's the, it, it is kind of funny to go back and look at all the trade analysis around that. Like I, I went back last night and read something I wrote about it um, as soon as that trade broke through. Um, and it really kind of did put it in perspective. But I mean, credit to him. You know, the, the first half of the year, he was an all-star starter. Um, we talked a lot about that on this podcast. He fell off a little bit in the second half of the season, but he, he's found his stride again um, in these playoffs. Yeah, he's uh, he's he's been terrific. Um, averaging now after that performance in game three, he's averaging three offensive boards per game. Um, that's, you know, one of the most incredible things uh, that he's done in this conference finals. Um, they're going to hand out a conference final MVP trophy, Scott, at the end of this series. It is uh, a new uh, trophy in both conferences named after Magic Johnson for the Western Conference, Larry Bird for the Eastern Conference. Um, there's there's always going to be the jokes about Steph Curry never winning these things. You know, uh, the, he hasn't won a finals MVP yet. Sure, that will be talked about a ton uh, if the Warriors are able to complete the, uh, you know, close out the Mavericks here in the series. But uh, in this conference finals, Wiggins has every, you know, argument uh, that you could have out there. He's the same sort of argument that Audrey Iguodala had in the 2015 NBA finals that helped him win uh, that finals MVP. Um, If you had a vote, who do you give it to, Wiggins or Curry or someone else? This is this is coming from someone who went back and forth a couple of years ago with our Mike Adams over on the Sporting News about why Iguodala deserved to be MVP in that series, and I think you're right. There are quite a few parallels, right? It's it's not only the 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 game changing defense on the opposing team's best player um, and that team being built around them, but also giving enough offensively to really make a difference. In saying that, it's Steph Curry. Like he's averaging 28 points per game in this series. Eight rebounds. Only Kevon Looney is averaging more rebounds than Steph Curry on the Warriors in this series. He's also averaging a team-best 6.7 assists, shooting 49% from the field, 48 from three, 82 from the free throw line. Um, we know this Warriors team is built around him offensively. Everything that he does, it's his, it's his identity. Even in that game one, he didn't shoot. like It wasn't like a big Steph Curry game, but the Warriors blew the Mavs out in large part just because there were several times, and I wrote about this, several times where they just like jump out at him on the three-point line when he's calling around a screen because they're terrified of him getting open. And that opens Kevon Looney cutting back door for a dunk or Clay Thompson slipping back door for a layup. Like his fingerprints are all over everything that the Warriors do offensively. And I think, yes, Wiggins has a case. He absolutely does. But for me, it's... I can't help but feel like it's being a little bit of like the prisoner in the moment and saying that he deserves to be the MVP of this series or get this award because he's been great defensively through all, all three games. But offensively in game one, he had 19 points, game two, 16 points. And then game three was the one he really exploded for 27 points. Um, that, that's, you know, he's averaging 20.7 points per game in the series. They have mu- they've greatly needed his offense. But I just think, you know, what Steph Curry does offensively, he is the identity of this team. The numbers that he's putting up, he's been incredibly efficient. The Warriors, the, the Mavericks have had absolutely no answer for him. And by the way, he's held up defensively. Like, it's always been funny to talk about Steph Curry's defense because he was always targeted on that end of the court. And I don't think that had much as much to do with him being a bad defender per se. He was just the weakest defender on one of the greatest defensive teams we've ever seen in our lifetimes, right? Um, but over the last few years in particular, Steph Curry has really improved defensively. I think it's helped that he's bulked up a little bit. Um, and again, he hasn't had these same responsibilities on that end of the court as Wiggins has. But I think he it's, it's not like he's been a, a negative on that end of the court. So um, I, I, I feel pretty pretty easy about saying Steph Curry for this one. I know, But I know you're going to disagree with me. I, I, do, I do disagree only to this point, though. And Game 4 is going to tell us a lot about um, and, and, and if there's a potential Game 5. Uh, about who should get the win- the vote here. I think at the end, if you gave the award out at the end of three games, I do think you have to give it to Andrew Wiggins, um, and and I would vote for him. But I, I need to see how Game Four plays out because if Game Four plays out with Steph Curry, uh, you know, being the offensive force that he is, and and closing the door with you know some clutch threes down the stretch of a game, then I, I don't think there's any question that you you have to give him the MVP uh, of the conference finals. Um, 
But I do think that this is kind of his legacy in a good way. Um, you know, the fact that Andre Iguodala was able to win finals MVP in 2015, Kevin Durant was able to win back-to-back finals MVP um, when the Warriors went back-to-back uh, in, in 2017 and 18. I, I do think that this is Steph Curry's legacy in a good way in the sense that I, there's no other player in NBA history, star player in NBA history, outside of Bill Russell. And I'm happy to be wrong if someone is able to go out there and find someone. But outside of Bill Russell, that is able to allow other great players to be themselves and still not lose anything, um, you know, from their game. It is, you know, you you could go down the list and through decades and eras of great players still in their prime that, um, you know, refuse to sacrifice, or it's just, just the way that they play just doesn't allow uh, anyone else. Um, you know, to easily fit around them, you know, pointing, you know, case in point is LeBron James. He's, he's a perfect example of, you know, he went to Miami. They had a, a lot of growing pains. Chris Bosh and, and, and Dwayne Wade couldn't be who they once were, uh, you know, apart from James, they had to come, they had to figure out how to be completely different players to, to be able to still be effective and not say James didn't make players around him better. He does, um, but they have to become different types of players. And I don't think that, you know, if you were to join the Warriors, whoever you are in the NBA, that you have to change much of who you are. Uh, it, it, Steph just kind of allows you to play your game, and he's still going to get his. I think Bill Russell was, uh, you know, similar in that vein where he was a great scorer, Scott. Like, he, you know, people look at him as as if he was almost like a, a you know, rich man's Ben Wallace because we, we know about his defense and his rebounding and how many win, you know, championship wins he had. But this is a guy that, you know, was scoring – you know, 30 plus points in, in crucial playoff games. You know, he was, he was scoring, you know, he had, he had a 31 and 31 game in a game three against the Philadelphia Warriors against going up against Wilt Chamberlain. You not only had to hold him down on one end, but also score on the other end. He had the famous 30 point 40 rebound game uh, in game seven of the NBA finals, um, you know, to help beat the Lakers uh, in a seventh game series. Like this is a guy that he could score, you know, but his career averages, uh, where I think what um, you know, said sixteen points uh, in the playoffs and, and and fifteen points in the regular season, uh, and you know he had other great players around him, so he allowed them to you know put the ball in the basket, and he he sort of just kind of gotten where he fit in. And I don't know if there's another player in NBA history outside of Bill Russell that that would do that uh, the way that Steph Curry has, because Steph Curry's numbers through the years haven't really dropped much, no matter who's playing around him. Uh, Jordan Poole's emergence. You know, credit Steph Curry. Um, you know, because especially at the beginning of this playoffs, how many two-time MVPs would come off the bench to allow Jordan Poole to remain in the starting lineup because he got it going? And and then when coming when coming in the game, you're still the same guy. You know, how many uh, two-time MVPs would allow a Kevin Durant to show up on the team? And essentially, the argument was. Who's the best player in the NBA? It was Kevin Durant for a lot of people. Still is for a lot of people, but you know he didn't take a back step at all. Um, you know he kind of let him shine, and through that, uh, Clay Thompson famously said, "Hey, I'm not I'm not sacrificing bleep," and he didn't have to because Steph Curry, Steph Curry. Um, I don't know how many. I don't know how that. You know, everyone always wonders how that Warriors team kind of still just gelled. You know, as, as easily as it did, and it's because Steph Curry, who was the best player on the team. Is so selfless as a as a superstar, uh, and you know his game is actually uh, selfless. You know, not only is he selfless as a superstar, but his game is selfless as well. So, there's a lot of great players in the NBA that could learn from Steph Curry, not only about the selflessness, but also figuring out ways to impact the game without the basketball. Um, you know, Steph is you, you've written about this this year. Steph's great at it. You know, he, he has a unique skill where he's the greatest shooter of all time, so you got to know where he is on the court. I thought last year Giannis figured that out, uh, and that led to him winning his first title. When he didn't have the ball in his hands, he was setting screens, he was getting rebounding position. He was figuring out how to, you know, still make an impact offensively without the ball in his hands, and that allowed Chris Middleton to blossom into the closer he became. That allowed Drew Holiday to do the same. Uh, so I, I really feel there's a lot of NBA stars – I think about Trey Young, who's been compared to Steph. Imagine what the Hawks would be if Trey Young learned how to play without the basketball with 
you know, Bogdan Bogdanovich, who is an absolute killer down the stretch of basketball games. I mean, he he loves to take big shots, but just doesn't have the opportunities to do it because Trey dominates the ball so much. Danilo Gallinari, who's a great, you know, ball handler. Kevin Herter, who, you know, pops up in big games in the playoffs anytime he wants. That Hawks team has tools. DeAndre Hunter, that Hawks team has tools to be great, but Trey Young doesn't know how to impact the game without the ball in his hands. So I... And there's a lot of players like that, not just you know picking on Trey. I, I just feel that Steph Curry, we should appreciate his selflessness as a superstar because I don't think we've we, – we haven't seen it since, in my opinion, Bill Russell, and I don't think we'll ever see it again. Yeah, I think you nailed all that. I, I will say, though, it, it is easy to say, like, people should – We and we touched about on this a week or two ago. I, I think it's very easy to say, like, hey, watch Steph Curry and do what he does off ball. The reality is there's a reason why he's one of a kind, right? He's – he's probably the most well-conditioned athlete in the NBA, right? Like he, he runs relentlessly. He's coming off of screens all game long. Not only that, but like he's what, six foot three. He's not like a big guy. And yeah, he's willing to give up his body to set screens on power forward senses, guys who are, you know, a foot taller than him sometimes. And I, I think that's a big part of it as well. Like he, he's just willing to do things that quite frankly, a lot of superstars aren't offensively. And the thing that's always funny to me is that, like, if you go back and read some of the stuff about Steph Curry coming into the NBA, a lot of the criticisms was kind of like, hey, this guy is a shooting guard, essentially, right? Like, he's a six foot three shooting guard. What does that look like in the NBA? And, you know, he started his career kind of playing more point guard and learning that. But I think the Steph Curry that we see today is kind of the best of both worlds, right? It's a guy who can run a pick and roll and teams are so terrified of him pulling up from three that they put two on the ball and that leaves Draymond Green rolling to the basket and attacking four on three. And we know Draymond Green is excellent and thrives in those situations. But it's also that ability to score off of screens in a way that maybe only Clay Thompson can in the league, right? Um, and being able to punish teams with his off-ball movement. And, I mean, it's just made him such a complete not only shooter, but scorer. Um, and you see the way that opens up opportunities. And I think that's kind of what makes Steph Curry so impressive. Because to your point, you can plug a Kevin Durant in and Kevin Durant is still going to be able to do all the things that he wants to do. <clears throat> but that one time you leave Steph Curry open, he's making that three. And you're going to be terrified of it. And the next time down, Kevin Durant's going to slide to the basket and get a wide open dunk. Um, we see it with you know Andrew Wiggins in this situation. It's almost like, it, it's almost similar to like Jokic in Denver right it's like if you have to cut with Jokic in denver because it's wide open and he's going to pass it there and if you don't get it it's going to go out of bounds and you're going to look silly um it's almost the same thing in golden state just with with uh, steph curry's movement not necessarily with his passing as much so i mean look it's an incredible run he's, he's one of the greatest players of all time one of the greatest point guards of all time he's done basically everything but wins finals mvp and i don't think that at the end of the day whether he wins one this season or not should have much of an impact at all on his legacy but this stretch, you know, of being the driver on the Golden State Warriors, um, a team that won a championship when really no one, I think, kind of expected it from them, then taking a backseat to Kevin Durant in his prime, having that injury, missing basically an entire season, coming back, being a finalist for MVP, and now at the age of 33, kind of leading this Warriors team back to, you know, knocking on the, knocking on the door of a, another finals run. Um, it, it's just been an unbelievable kind of, what, seven or eight year stretch from him. Um, and just a testament to just how incredible the player he is. Yeah, I, and, and just to clarify on my on my Bill Russell comparison, obviously I'm comparing a guard to a big. I'm I'm more so comparing the usage percentage, you know, in terms of just having the ball in your hand and still being able to impact the game. Like it, Russell is obviously one of the greatest defenders this game has ever seen, but you know he, he allowed others to to do their thing offensively and still was able to contribute because he was such a great rebounder and. Uh, you know, if you needed him to score, he was going to figure out how to score. Steph's, you know, um, you know, Jordan Poole is, I don't know what he does outside of, uh, you know, Steph was selfish in terms of, um, you know, pounding the ball into the floor. Jordan Poole does not blossom into the, you know, playmaker that he's become. Same with Draymond Green. Um, you know, so the, the cutting and stuff, it, you know, there, and there's a lot of players that, like I said, make you better. LeBron, uh, Jokic. You know, the list goes on and on. I could throw Kevin Durant in there. He's he's a low-maintenance type of player. Um, but those guys still kind of need the ball in their hands more than Steph. And Steph just, you know, because he, he's such a great shooter, he could turn into a catch-and-shoot guy and extend his career for uh, hopefully a, a lot longer uh, and, and we get to enjoy and play basketball. But just wanted to shout him out because, you know, I'm, I'm starting to 
I, I, not like I didn't appreciate him before, but uh, he's uh, he is one of those players that, you know, Scott, you know, as we get older, um, you know, kids come up to us and say, what was it like watching Steph Curry play? He's one of those players. There's not a lot of them in the NBA. There's great players in the NBA, but they're not going to live on forever. But uh, he's going to be one of those players. Um, all right, let's get to the Heat Celtics before we get out of here. Um, it's been blowout after blowout in the series, Scott. I'm really disappointed by the score lines in the series. But now we have put the four, first, get, four, first four games behind us, and now we have a best of three. Uh, it feels like... Hopefully, you know, the injury bug for both teams is behind us, and this is who we have going forward. Um, I, I am nervous about Jimmy Butler uh, seeing him play in game four. I don't think he should have been out there you know, based off of the performance that he gave, but he said he's ready to go. Uh, so no excuses you know, for game five. Game five goes Wednesday night in Miami. Must win game, in my opinion, for the Heat. They don't want to go down 3-2 and then go to Boston in six. Uh, what, what do you think? How do you think game five plays out? Um, and, and has the series, as this played out, changed your mind in any way, shape, or form? I feel like my, my mind has changed after each game in this series because, to your <laughs> point, it's just been blowout after blowout. Uh, it, it's been such a weird series. And I, I do think injuries are, are still a concern because Jimmy Butler, uh, Max Struess, Kyle Lowry, and P.J. Tucker were initially questionable going into last night's game. And then, obviously, Tyler Hero also missed the game with a groin injury. Look, the reality is this Heat team is incredible defensively. Like the, what they're able to do, they're, they're basically matchup proof. They can match up with any team in the league, any combination of stars. Uh, they are elite on that end of the court. The question with them has always been offensively, and can they generate scoring in the half court? The reality is if Jimmy Butler is going to be hobbled, um, if Tyler Hero is either not going to play or not be the player that he was during the regular season when he was their second leading scorer, getting 20 points on a nightly basis, and really if... if Bam Adebayo, outside of that game three, just hasn't been able to impact this series offensively. I think a lot of that has to do with Robert Williams and his ability to protect the rim at such a high rate. The reality is, no matter what they do defensively, if they can't get going offensively, and I think the combination of those injuries and all that um, is very concerning for them going into these final three games. In saying that, like, you know, the, the I, I looked it up just before, because I'm writing an article about it right now, but... In their two wins, the Celtics averaged nine turnovers per game. Do you want to guess what that number is in their two losses? Uh, I know it's over 20. 19.5, so just wow. under 20. So they're averaging double the amount of turnovers in their losses. And I think a lot of that, again, speaks to that heat defense, what they're able to do, play them physically, um, speed them up. What Victor Oladipo did in that third quarter in particular of Game 3 uh, was absolutely ridiculous. But... Um, it, I, I just I worry about the Heat with those combinations of injuries, and then if the Celtics can just take better care of the ball the way that they have in their two wins, not be sloppy. Because again, credit to the Heat defense, but there's also a lot of sloppy Celtics turnovers in those games. If you go back and watch, just bad passes to teammates, um, losing the ball, getting stripped, and the Heat thrive off of those opportunities. So it's it's hard to based on the way the first four games are it's hard to kind of predict where this series is going to go i had the celtics going into the series i think based on what we have seen i still feel good about that um but knowing knowing that the, the heat are probably going to win by 25 points in, in game five so <laughs> yeah yeah maybe um i i haven't changed my mind on the boston celtics uh winning this series i, I still firmly believe that they are the better team uh and they'll be able to get to four uh, first, I don't know if that's going to be in six or seven games. Uh, and, but where I've changed my mind on the Boston Celtics in this series is, I don't think that they're going to win the NBA championship. I, I, I think before this series started, you know, looking at the final four teams, I would have given Boston the best chance of winning the title. But watching them through this series, and also thinking about the Milwaukee series. I, there's there's more flaws uh, that we've kind of swept under the rug because they've been able to get out of series and been able to bounce back after every loss in the playoffs uh, so far that we are going to see show up in the finals um, and and you know no, to no fault of their own they've had to go through you know uh, three tough teams in terms of the Brooklyn Nets I know that was a sweep but that was an emotional series. Uh, you know, that they had to come down from, which, you know, ended up seeing them lose the first game of the, the Bucks series. They weren't able to, you know, get back up emotionally after after that series. 
and then same thing happened. You know, they get past the Bucks, and emotionally, they just weren't there in the second half of game one against the Heat, uh, and the Heat were able to get past them. The game three of the Eastern Conference Finals told me a lot about the Boston Celtics because they were able to destroy the, the Heat in game two. They proved to everybody in that game, I think, that they were the better team. They knew that the Heat were hobbled. Jimmy Butler had left the game, uh, you know, at half. Uh, and, they, yeah, they were able to make a comeback. But they were down by 26 at one point, Scott. And the way they started that game three, it was very arrogant. It was almost like the Heat were just going to roll over. And I, I just didn't like seeing that from them. They just didn't have the championship killer instinct that I think you need to win a, champ, uh, a championship in the NBA. And, you know, they can't afford to do that against the Golden State Warriors, who we assume is going to be there as they're up 3-0. I, you know, the, the Warriors are going to be very hungry to prove to everyone that they still are at the top of the mountain. Everyone's trying to climb up and get them. And I don't know that mentally the Boston Celtics are ready to take on that challenge, especially having to go through, you know, three emotional little, you know, series as, as they've had to go through. I, I, you know, Tatum's, you know, inconsistencies in the playoffs have been met with, you know, great games after a, a terrible game, which is great. That's what you want out of your star. But in the finals, it's a different ball game. You know, you get to the finals, you have a bad game too. You got to sit with that for two or three days. Everyone's talking about it. You know, you're chomping at the bit, and then you turn into a game three where you're just clutching too hard. You're playing too hard. You're not letting the game come to you. And I could see that happening with the Celtics here. I really can. Um, you know, it, I, I just think the inexperience, the you know, the the mental grind that they've had to go through, and the lack of the killer instinct for me is is going to show up. In the finals, they should have never lost Game Five at home to the set to the uh, Milwaukee Bucks in Game Two. The Bucks came in there and beat them. And mind you, Chris Milton was not playing. You know, they they had advantages in that series that they just did not take care of. And Game Six was a huge win. It was a great bounce back win. Winning Game Seven at home, no easy feat. They were it was a blowout win. But I I, I just unless I see two wins in convincing fashion over the next two. Um, and they close the series out in six. If they go into Miami, pound them, and, and and go back home and close this out, and and then we're you know even forgetting that this was a six game series. I just think that the Golden State Warriors are going to be the team to beat heading into the finals, and that, and that they're going to be my pick. Um, even though I expect Boston to be there, they're going to be my pick, and I think they'll as the series goes on, I, I think they'll show that there's just a toughness, mental toughness that Boston lacks right now. I'm kind of on the same page as you in terms of, I think going into the conference finals, I thought the Celtics were like the hands down favorites to win a title, just the way that they played in those first two rounds, what they're able to do defensively. And I think kind of what those two losses that you touched on and the way the Warriors have played, to be honest, um, because it's been so impressive what they've been able to do against the Mavericks. And they haven't actually had like that easy of a road to the finals, assuming they get there either, right? They had the Nuggets in the first round, who they they handled pretty easily, but you still got to slow down um, Nikola Jokic. Second round, they got a Grizzlies team that, you know, they had, what, the second-best record in the league this season, have a superstar in John Morant. Even though he went down, I mean, the Grizzlies picked up a ton of wins. They were like 20-5 and five during the regular season in games that John Morant uh, didn't play, and they're a completely different team. So it's not like they've had, and then obviously the Mavericks in the conference finals. Like, this hasn't been an easy road for them either. Um, but based on the way that these two losses have gone, I, I do think I still don't know who I'm going to pick if it's Celtics Warriors. Um, but I, I, I think I probably might be leaning a little bit more towards the Warriors right now. Um, but even beyond that, you know, the fact that I mean that that ankle injury that Marcus Smart suffered in game what was it game four game three? I don't know how he came back from that. You you just watch the way that his ankle bent. Like I have no idea how he came back. Um, testament to his toughness and everything that he did. To no surprise, it sounds like that's really swollen up um, since, and it was enough to keep him out of that game four. I'm very curious to see what his availability is like, not only the rest of the series, but the rest of the season, if they do advance, because um, he is someone who, you know, we just talked about Steph Curry for a long time and how unique he is offensively. It sure would be nice to have the first guard to win defensive player of the year in, what, two decades or whatever it was. Um, be able to have him kind of chasing Steph Curry around, even though it takes a team to kind of, you know, defend him. But still, um, and also the the Robert Williams the third angle. Um, I mean, he made a second team All Defensive team this season. He's one of the best rim protectors in the league. We saw his impact not having him in Game Three and what Bam Adebayo was able to do, um, and then his return in Game Four and how he was able to make life much more difficult for him. Him kind of being in and out of the lineup with what is it knee soreness? It sounds like his knees kind of swelling up. 
um, not knowing his availability. Limping. He was limping all through game four, at least in that yeah. first half. It, it didn't. I thought they were going to take him out, and he, he fought through. So he's clearly banged up, and yeah, that matters. It does matter. I mean, uh, again, there's two guys on the Celtics who made all defensive team this season, and one of them now has an ankle injury, and we don't know when he's going to come back. And the other one is dealing with some knee soreness and isn't is still impacting the game when he's out there. But he's, I don't, to your point, I don't think he quite looks like himself. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, a big couple games coming up for the Celtics. I'm with you. I think the next game is a must win for the Heat, just given the circumstances and how the last game went. Very curious to see how Jason Tatum comes out. Um, but I, I, I do think, you know, if the Celtics do advance, I, either way, really, um, assuming that the Warriors do take care of business, whichever combination it's going to be in the finals, it should be a good series. Yeah, it should be. Um, I, I still expect it to be Boston and Golden State, but it, it should be uh, it should be uh, a good final series regardless. Um, Boston, man, y- y'all need to close this out in six because that finals date is not moving. Uh, it's going to be, you know, the finals begin June 2nd, no matter what. And the Warriors look like they're going to have at least a week's rest. Even if it goes to a game five, they'll have a, a long week off. And if there's a team in this final series or in these conference final series that needs a break, it's both Miami and both Boston. And if there is a game seven, that would go on Sunday, I believe, um, which is just four right. days before the start of the NBA finals. I don't know if that's enough time, um, you know, so. Close that out. Close that out. If they, they if they closed it out in Game Six, either team they would have at six days rest uh, before we begin the NBA Finals on June second. All right. Um, quickly before we get out of here, the Lakers are back in the news, Scott. So we got to talk about them. Uh, reportedly, they have not given up complete hope, or they have not completely abandoned hope that uh, Sixers Doc Rivers becomes available unexpectedly. Um, that report coming from Mark Stein. Um, the Lakers do have a final three that has been reported. That's uh, Bucks assistant coach Darvin Ham, Kenny Atkinson, the former Nets coach, and former Blazers coach Terry Stotts. Those three names uh, seem to have risen to the top. There's still some Adrian Griffin uh, rumblings out there, Raptors assistant coach. But the Doc Rivers news, I think, stopped me when I heard it. Uh, he is still under contract with the Philadelphia 76ers. By the way, he, he signed a five-year deal, $40 million when he started. People think like this guy's on, you know, this contract's up. No, he, he's going to be there not only for this upcoming season, 2022-23, but two more years after that. That's a long time. Uh, that's the reason why I think uh, he's still the head coach, uh, a big reason why he's still the head coach of the Philadelphia 76ers here, um, you know, this offseason. But we have seen strange things happen with Doc in the past, right? Like we've seen this guy, um, you know, bounce from team to team. Doesn't really ever feel like Doc is without a job. We've also seen him get traded as a head coach before. The Boston Celtics traded him to the LA Clippers back in 2013 for a 2015 unprotected first round pick. By the way, pick was wasted. They they drafted RJ Hunter with it, though. So it was like it was a big deal on that uh on that draft pick so no harm no foul for the clippers they got a good run out of doc uh never truly reaching their potential but uh they did get a good run out of doc rivers um all right you're daryl morey the lakers come to you with a similar trade scenario where you get a first round pick back the lakers don't have a first round pick that they truly own till i think it's 2027 so there's some eighth grader that will be a, a laker um one day uh, so the Lakers come to you with that trade scenario. You have Doc Rivers who, you know, you didn't really get a chance to see him fully with the Embiid and Harden combination. You only saw two months of it and flamed out in the playoffs. Injuries had a lot to do with that. Maybe the team's healthy. You go deeper. What do you do? It's a tough question. I, I think I thought you were going to ask me more about the Lakers perspective on this. So the, the 76 is one is interesting. Ultimately, like I, I think to your point that you haven't really seen much of this team, right? Like we saw the potential on the James Harden, Joel Embiid pairing. We also saw some, some of their downfalls with Harden not being the player that he once was. Um, Doc Rivers, obviously, I mean, he was voted one of the 15 greatest coaches of all time. If you look at his playoff resume, there, there's some stuff on there um, that will give you some pause in terms of blowing 3-1 leads, um, not necessarily making adjustments um, when it's the most important in the series. I actually thought he coached pretty well all things considered in these playoffs until kind of like those last two games against the heat it it all kind of fell apart for them 
Um, but going up against kind of Nick Nurse in the first round and then Eric Spolstra, two of the best coaches in the league, I thought he did pretty well for the most part. I, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I guess the other question for the Sixers would be if you did trade him, who is his replacement, right? Um, and maybe it's one of the, these these head coaches who are one of the finalists for the Lakers job. Um, I don't know, but I, I, I don't know if they're going to find necessarily a huge upgrade over Doc Rivers um, if asked, they were to get rid of him. I asked our basketball, uh, lead basketball writer at Sporting News, Steph, no, the same question. He came back with Mike D'Antoni um, as the replacement for Doc Rivers should the Sixers allow him to pursue this Laker opportunity. I thought it was interesting, but I also thought to myself, I've never seen Mike D'Antoni with a true back-to-the-basket big like Joel Embiid, so I'd be very interested to see how he was able to scheme his offense that we know is normally you know best suited for teams that go smaller, um, you know, and, and teams that all you know have catch-and-shoot guys and uh, drive-and-kick offense. I'd never really put any thought into what that would look like with a big like Joel Embiid who, you know, at his best is going to be playing with his back to the basket. He's never really had that. He, I mean, he had the the stint uh, with Wash Shack. Um, you know, Steve Kerr tried to make that work in, in Phoenix. Um, and obviously that was a disaster. But Shaq wasn't Shaq, right? Like it wasn't it wasn't the best version of Shaquille O'Neal. So I'm not going to judge him on that. Um, and that that didn't last too long before he was uh, on his way out of there. New York didn't really have uh, a ton of big men, but they did have Carmelo Anthony who could play with his basket to basket. He had the stint in L.A. with Dwight Howard. Dwight Howard by no means is anybody is, is going to put any fear to anyone with his back to the basket. So it would be interesting to see, um, you know, what what he would be able to cook up uh, with a with a big post presence like uh, Joel Embiid. Um, on the Lakers, this is Amare, by the way, right? Amare is probably the answer to this. But Amare, not that he was, was like a big post-up player. He was primarily yeah. like pick and roll and everything. But he was a guy who did. I remember getting the ball at the elbows, the low block. Um, when he the did. Game, game kind of slowed down. He did. Amare was probably, but Amare's game was better suited to face up um, and attack yep. bigs than, than right. play back to the basket. And you know, he he did. Have, not to say that you know, uh, D'Antoni didn't have serviceable bigs because he turned Clint Capella into a borderline max player in his system. And, um, you know, he, he found he found ways to uh, figure out how to use Dwight Howard in an effective way offensively. So it's not like he can't uh, functionally have a, a big man as part of his offense. I just Joel Embiid is, is just completely different than all of those players, um, to, you know, and he is a dominant force. So he does have to get the touches where he wants them. And, you know, standing out in the perimeter, which he does like to do at times, I don't think is the best use for him. Um, on the Lakers side, though, it, it, it's, uh, you know, the, the reported names are out there, as we said, Darvin Ham, Kenny Atkinson, and, and former Blazers coach Terry Stotts. None of those names um, feel Lakers-ish, Laker-ish, right? Like it, they don't bring in the glitz and glam. I don't, I don't feel like uh, if any of those three get hired, that Laker fans will be doing backflips and saying, we can't wait till next season because this coach uh, is going to bring us to the promised land. And I don't know what the Lakers do. Is is, is there someone uh, out of the three that you would be intrigued to see you know, get their hands on this roster? In response to that, by the way, I, I will say, I don't know if there was necessarily a ton of excitement for Frank Rogel when he was first hired, right? Because it felt like he was kind of like the second or third option even. He was like and, the fifth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess. So... You know, it, it didn't end well. His tenure didn't end well there. I don't necessarily, I, I don't think you can pin that much on him realistically, but he did lead them to a championship. Um, so I, I don't necessarily know if that's a bad thing. I, I think of the three, Darvin Ham is the most interesting to me. Uh, he's been in the NBA a long time as an assistant coach. He has experience playing in the NBA. Based on everyone who's kind of plugged into this stuff, they say it's only a matter of time until he gets that first opportunity. Um, has a reputation of being, you know, like having a strong voice in the locker room. I think that's maybe something that that gives you a little bit of hesitation when you're talking about coaching a team led by LeBron James, um, who you know does everything kind of runs through him and what he wants to do. Um, I don't know. I, I think though, I, I still think he's maybe probably the kind of person that they need, um, given where they are, given how the season just went. Kenny Atkinson, I think, had you know a fantastic stretch with the Nets, um, took over that rebuilding team. And that one season, that 2018-19 season, they surpassed everyone's expectations. They were one of like the league past darlings. Um, he is a good kind of pedigree in, in player development and everything like that. 
Um, and Terry Stotts, we know he had, you know, nine seasons, was it, with the Blazers, led them to the playoffs eight straight seasons. They were never able to quite get over the hump, but they made, what, was it two trips to the Western Conference Finals? That's mm-hmm. nothing to sneeze at. Um, there's only actually 35, 34 coaches who have more wins than him in NBA history, so he does have a ton of experience. So I, I think it's an interesting list of candidates, but but Darvinham is, is it seems like the, the one that kind of jumps out to me. Yeah, um, it's probably being best suited for it. If nothing for nothing else, I would like to see Darvin Ham get a shot because I've seen the other guys coach, uh, and that's no disrespect to uh, Kenny Atkinson and and uh, and Terry Stotts. I think if I was to rank him, it would be Ham, Atkinson, Stotts. I I, I don't know uh, if I if I need to see Stotts at the helm of this Lakers team. I think Ham. Also, people forget, you know, sometimes bad not bad players, but sometimes bench players on championship winning teams. Uh, have a have a good perspective of how to get back there uh, because they were essentially coaches in those roles, um, just in a in a in a warm up uniform. Uh, and Darvin Ham did help, uh, you know. Well, he didn't help, but he was on the roster when the when the Pistons won in 04 uh, under you know uh, Hall of Fame coach Larry Brown. So you know he, he does have at least championship pedigree. Whereas you know um, you know and it could relate to the players and. In Ham's situation, in the Lakers situation, you know LeBron James is going to be LeBron James. Anthony Davis is going to be Anthony Davis. It's getting the most out of those ten other players that I think you need to to figure out uh, whether Russell Westbrook's going to be there or not is obviously a, a big question mark. But the others, um, you know, need to figure out a way to stay motivated, try to put them in positions to succeed. And I think Darvin Ham, being the role player that he was in his NBA career, being the assistant coach for as long as he has. He has that championship pedigree. I, I do think he would be the most interesting hire, um, and I actually would take him over Doc Rivers. Uh, I, if I had the choice between the two, if I'm in the Lakers front office, I'm, I'm going with a with new blood rather than you know rehashing um, you know what Doc brings to the table. The the one thing that makes the Lakers coaching hire so interesting though is that it's not just about X's and O's with this team. Like you have to win press conferences, and I think that's where Frank Vogel might have lost his job is that he's just not maybe not the strong personality that the LA uh, fan base needs because he, you know, was put out there multiple times or this team was playing horribly uh, and never really made you feel that he had control of this team or, um, you know, was helping this team. Uh, It it almost felt redless. And, you know, when you lose press conferences in a market like LA, um, you know, it, it is it is something that you do have to navigate through that you might not have to navigate through when you're you know coaching in Indiana or Orlando, uh, which were two previous stops. So I think Darvin Ham, it would be a tough first job to have, you know, really <laughs> coaching tough. LeBron James. But there's you know Mike Brown had to figure it out, um, you know, and and many other coach Ty Lue had to figure it out. Uh, so uh, Darvin Ham will uh, be able to to kind of lean on some others and and try and figure it out. You got to start somewhere. Uh, all right, Scott. Let's uh, let's roll out of here. We will be back next week, uh, Tuesday at two, uh, rather one p.m. Eastern time, two days before the NBA Finals. I can't wait. Um, you know, the season's kind of flown by. It feels like just yesterday we were talking about All Star starters, and uh, before that it was just Christmas Day and you know, beginning of the season. And now here we are, a week away from the NBA Finals. Likely the Golden State Warriors will be there. Still have to figure out who will be there in the eastern conference if you've missed any part of the live show you can find us wherever you get your podcast nba sound system type that in subscribe rate and review tell your friends about it uh it does us a big help and it's free free of charge doesn't uh doesn't cost you anything to uh, spread the word so for scott rafferty i'm carlin gay reminding you to please enjoy the games and we will see you next week right here on nba sound system